Today's episode, you meet Bryce Johnson. Bryce is the son of a 79 grad. Say that with a smile. Uh, he's also an 08 grad who majored in poli-sci at the Air Force, was noted as a KAFA disc jockey and a Recondo uh, trainer. After graduation, Bryce went off to pilot training, became a uh, C-130 pilot as well as an RPB pilot, where he spent a bunch of time in the desert as well as uh, both in the Nevada and in the Middle East. Uh, currently, Bryce is a, uh, a Six Sigma professional at a hospital in Nebraska. Well, thanks for doing this. I wanted to, uh, I always start this with the same fundamental question, and that is, uh, what message do you have for the incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads, and the old goats like me? So for the grads while they're there, or the cadets while they're there, is uh, em embrace the absurd. So the there are a lot of absurd things that kind of happen at the academy. When you look at your past experience, uh, I remember in particular freshman year, we had a briefing and we had to go in an overfill in one of the H rooms with the wing. Um, it was the wing training officer and somebody threw an apple at the screen and it was a huge deal. But looking back on it, that was minor. It was just a little thing. And then there's another time that uh, the main chat software people use to communicate with both their friends uh, at the academy and outside the academy and other colleges was AOL Instant Messenger. It was a big thing in the mid 2000s and the academy blocked it for I think a few weeks on their computer system and people were making announcement on the staff tower. There were emails about it <laughs> and it was just kind of an absurd thing looking back on it because I mean, we had cell phones, we could call like texting was harder because smartphones weren't quite there yet, but uh, just to kind of embrace the embrace those absurd moments because those are what's going to get get you through it uh, and get through the academy experience. Oh my goodness, here the, the <laughs> our, my your era is so different than my era. It's unbelievable. Um, so where did you grow up? What 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 got you there in the first place? So I am a second generation grad. Uh, my father was uh, Alan Johnson, class in 1979, and uh, he was a pilot in the Air Force, uh, moved around, and then left active duty when I was five. And we moved to Marietta, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta. Uh, not the one that the rest of Delta pilots live in, but the one in the north. <laughs> and uh, lived there throughout my entire childhood. And so I, I heard those stories of the Academy. I heard of some of the pranks. I heard of the experiences. And I heard about the Air Force experience. And I knew that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And I also knew I wanted to fly. And, you know, my dad, who is also an ALO, you, you might see some themes here that there are some, uh, I wouldn't say some suggestions moving this direction. And uh, I knew that if I wanted to fly, the Air Force Academy was the best way to do it. Because yeah. otherwise, I'm going to be going uh, to ROTC, and then there's a few slots a year. And how is that going to work? So uh, that is what interested me in the Air Force Academy. I knew I wanted something different for my undergraduate experience. So, okay. <laughs> and your dad didn't warn you. He didn't prepare you for the, uh, the, I mean, the first he, summer. <laughs> he warned me for some stuff. And uh, I still, you know, not, not to get too emotional here. I still have a letter that he wrote me on the first week of basic, kind of yeah. laying out a, this is going to be hard, but this too shall pass. And, you know, you will think about quitting, but keep going. And it was just a very 
kind of raw emotional letter. And it's also like, you can tell anybody about anything about the experience, but till you get in there, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, I read uh, Absolutely American, which was uh, written about four years at West Point. I reread that two or three times before going to the academy, but it's still very different from reading about the experience and living the experience. And getting braced up against a wall and being told to, you know, do the phonetic alphabet in seven seconds and all, all that kind Yeah, of and then they, they tell you to do one thing and then you start doing it. It's like, actually, I want you to do something else and uh, <laughs> learning that when everybody has to change uniforms and go out in the hallway, you don't want to be first. This is not <laughs> one of those things that you want to be the leader on. And there was just a lot of lessons that occurred during, you know, Beast, and some of which have continued with me uh, as I moved through my Air Force and civilian career. So do you still fold your underpants in squares? I, I don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, I did the socks in the same way for a while after graduation, but I'm like, I don't have to do that anymore. So I, I did. <laughs> okay. uh, there's definitely certain clothing items. And uh, I sometimes check my gig line, even when I'm in just a polo shirt and uh, khaki pants going into the office. So uh, th there are definitely things that stick with you even all those years later. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had fun teaching civilians how to make sure they're uh, their dress shirts under their suits are lined up with their, you know, their gig line. And, and I tell them that, you know, tuck your shirt through your underpants and they're like, what? <laughs> I've never heard of something like that. That's yeah. Cool. It's like, Oh, and also where are these shirt garters? I'm like, I don't need to attach my shirt to my socks. I'm like I don't yeah. have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh gosh. Oh my goodness. Um, so freshman year was that, was that, pretty much a walk in a park with it with your dad kind of give, giving you the guidance or was I, that pretty I, I wish uh it was good to have somebody I could call and talk to who understood the experience yeah. because my civilian friends going through yeah maybe they were rushing at a uh, fraternity but it was not the same and to be able to kind of get that wise advice uh, from my father was great and definitely helped me at key points throughout freshman year. But it was still, it was still hard. Um, I knowledge test, I, don't, I assume you had to do those too. Those <laughs> bedeviled me all through freshman year, uh, all through four degree year of where it's like, okay, study this, but you also need to pass your classes and you also need to do your physical fitness tests. And, you know, we're going to give you a giant section that you have to memorize. Good luck. And I discovered that I'm not very good at memorization, just kind of that root memorization. So I might have spent a lot of weekends uh, without a pass during four degree year. Wow. Yeah. Where, where, where can you go anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe I could borrow a car. Well, I don't have one. Then you go around to the two degrees that have a car that aren't going out. It's like, can I please borrow a car? <laughs> so, so you make it through uh, recognition, right? How was that? So, so I was actually one of two classes that did not have a recognition. Really? Uh, the class of 2007 and the class of 2008 had, I think it was called Operation Phoenix. So it was uh, right after one of the scandals from the early 2000s, and they had adjusted how they completed the freshman year. So we had a training course that finished right before Thanksgiving, and then we had some additional stuff that finished right before spring break. So it wasn't the traditional recognition in the spring um not really our choice but it was still you know we completed what we wanted to but even just 
being called by her first names at the end of freshman year and kind of being treated as a full member of the cadet wing was still really nice. And it, it felt very liberating and even weird. It was really weird seeing all my freshman classmates in civilian clothes because we'd been in uniforms and PT gear for the entire year. Yeah. And then suddenly everybody's, you know, you get to see a little bit more of their personality. So you did not have a hell week at all? We did not. Okay. Well, you, you missed that one character building experience that I'm sure your dad remembers fondly. <laughs> yeah, he... He told me some stories. Uh, oh yeah, uh, he's seventy nine. He we overlapped by a year, so my my first year was his duly year. I, I don't know. I don't remember your dad at all, but I, I, I'm sure if if we ever ran into each other, he might remember me. I don't know. It, interesting stuff. Um, so uh, upper class. The, what, where did you do your duly squadron? What was your first squadron? So first squadron was uh, CS six, uh, okay. the Bulls, and then my. Uh, at the time, we did our last three years in one squadron. So I went legacy and went to CS23. 23. Okay. Yeah, we we did the same thing. We did duly year one place, and then they sent us off to get to flush that crap out of our brains for the upper three years. I think yeah. they're going back I, to I that. I like it because it was a good way to kind of refresh the experience and say, okay, uh, you went through, you did this hard thing. Here's kind of a new group of people that, didn't know you in basic yeah. or at least didn't have, you know, you could reinvent yourself almost. Now, did you have any uh, fun things you did during the academic year? You, you told me about one before we got on a call. What, what was that like? So the big one was uh, I started as a DJ at 97.7 KAFA, which was the cadet radio station. And just before I got there, they got all new equipment and allowed you to actually record before it would play so previously you had to be in the studio live slinging disc yeah. uh, slinging cds in order to record but then we could set everything up record our you know almost a week's worth of programming in about an hour hour and a half oh, uh, wow. so i started there and then the last two years i was the program director at uh, kfa so i was in charge of training the cadet uh, djs and then also listening and providing feedback uh, to them as they're going about and recording it and making sure that they're at least being there. The other nice thing about the system is if somebody could make it because they had you know, too many tests that they needed to worry about, like the music would continue to play. Sure. Now, did they screen? Did, did anybody oversee the, the music selection? We did. So we had uh, Dave West, who was a professional broadcaster, worked at the Academy, and now runs a uh, country radio station, I believe in Colorado Springs. And uh, he was there to kind of mentor and guide us. So we played, I'd call it kind of mid 2000s pop punk um, and alternative rock on our radio station. So we had a music director that would see the different music that came in. And then our last year, the AOG actually started streaming our broadcast and they're still doing it. So it was really neat to be able to not just play for the cadet area and that part of the interstate that drove by the zoo, but for <laughs> anybody that wanted to uh, get in and go on the AOG website. So I was able to like send the link to my parents. I'm like, hey, check out from here to here. You might not like the music, but you'll hear my voice. You can listen to them at four in the morning in uh, <laughs> Kuwait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we uh, as I recall, KFA was kind of milquetoast. Uh, back in our day but they 
I, they got away with, I think it was Sunday nights, they'd play somebody called Dr. Demento, which was oh, a, a DJ from Southern California, had all these really bizarre uh, music choices. And <laughs> they and nobody was around Sunday nights, so they would, they would play this thing out. We, we got a big kick out of it. It was always pretty fun. Yeah, we were able to keep it pretty professional. And then my senior year, we went to uh, a college music journal um, conference in New York City. So I was able to go to New York City, meet a bunch of people that worked in college radio, see a bunch of bands. Uh, I randomly ran into a guy I went to high school with who was performing. And it was just a really good experience to see us stacked up against, you know, all these major universities and their radio stations. Now, how did, other than that, did you have any other, uh, during the academic year, things that you did? I was also a Recondo instructor. Uh, okay. So I, Recondo at the time, and it still is, is more for those that ha uh, struggle with the PT test, uh, the PFT and the AFT, where they will go through that training. And uh, it's kind of a funny story how I got involved. Go ahead. So uh, there I was entering my three degree year and I get an email saying, hey, uh, come here for this training course. I'm like, okay, fine. So I go, I start getting involved and then I get another email for another thing. I'm like, huh, like I'm not involved with this. And then another email for another thing. <laughs> well, there was another cadet whose middle name was Bryce. Last name was Johnson. And so people would look up in the email list and say, okay, oh, that's Bryce Johnson. And they'd send me stuff. Uh, <laughs> after I figured out what was going on, like we talked and uh, we became friendly, but it was still a, uh, just a kind of a weird coincidence of where uh, he used, I had a name and, you know, people just looked up on the global and said, ah, it's him. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so he, that, yeah, that name recognition can be a bear. Yeah. So you, but you were not in any uh, physical fitness trouble. You just, you just became a, a one, one of the trainers. I, I did. I, um, I passed the test all the time. It was never fun. Uh, you could, uh, if you want to give me some PTSD, just play the beeps that they would play <laughs> during the, the PT test. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I always liked the AFT more. And then my favorite part was at the end of first year, you had to take the Air Force fitness test. And so going from the Academy fitness test with six different events and the runs and pull-ups to a minute push-ups, minute sit-ups, mile and a half run was kind of liberating. So was it still, I'm just curious, is the PFT uh, still the same thing? Uh, we had uh, seven hop, seven drop, 30, 52 and stop. That was the, uh, the what the heck was that? It was uh, a broad jump and then pull-ups and uh, sit-ups, push-ups, two-minute run. Uh, yeah, it was pull-ups, standing long jump, sit-ups, push-ups, and then I think it was a 600-meter run. Uh, okay. It was like two two laps around the track. Yeah. Uh, I had somebody that I knew teaching in the academy send me the score sheets just to see if, as I get older, if I can get anywhere close to what I did as a cadet, but I haven't <laughs> been brave enough to try it yet. Well, what's funny is uh, we, had, we had a motto about that called the uh, – if the men wasn't good enough, it wouldn't be the men, you know, so guys wouldn't, they, they would, they would pass it, but they wouldn't, they weren't trying to max out the PFT unless they were really in good shape. And unfortunately, yeah, if you could do it where you only had to take it once a year and exempt it, then totally go for it. But I was never uh, close to being that. 
So, and I'm just curious, how much time did that take up uh, of your academic year? Because the academics are pretty rough. That ended up being, uh, that would be my intramural. So instead of doing intramurals, I would do this. Did you also play intramurals? I did a four degree year. And then I think maybe three degree year. Um, I honestly used that time to do my laundry because (laughs) the laundromat was empty because all of the third and fourth group people were gone. So the Saijon laundromat was empty. So you had to do your own laundry. Yes. Yeah. Freshman, uh, four degree year, we had the laundry service, but after that, I mean, they had a wash and fold, but you had to pay for it. So I just try to either do my own laundry or go to my sponsor's house and do it there. Yeah, we 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 had to we had to they'd come pick up the bags and bring them back every once in a while. As I re- as I remember, maybe I'm my brain's fogging on that. <laughs> so uh, that's during the academic. Were there any uh, academic classes that stood out? Yes. So I uh, was a political science major, and I, I really enjoyed those types of things. Probably my favorite class was a American elections class. Uh, it was fall semester of 2006, so we were able to follow along the 2006 election, and we talked about American elections, and we set up uh, "quote unquote" fake campaigns for. We were following the Virginia Senate race, and it was really fascinating to be able to walk through and look through elections. And we had a, a civilian professor that taught it. It was just a very lively course, and that was definitely my favorite class at the academy. Cool. That's great. Any, any uh, least favorite <laughs> you want to talk oh, about? Yeah. Uh, pretty much any engineering class. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But I walked out of the uh, aeronautical engineering final uh, not confident I was going to be not coming back. Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. So I, I got through it, thankfully. Uh, but that was, that was tough. Uh, it was kind of difficult to do these. And then my friends are political science majors. They're just taking all poli-sci classes. They're like, math, what's that? So going to the academy and being forced to have that wider breath, I know ultimately helped me, but it still was, it was hard to go through some of those engineering classes. And I'm sure the engineering majors thought the same thing about going through the uh, poli-sci course. Well, I was a history major and I had, I had a horrible time with poli-sci, but I did okay in math and, uh, aeronautical engineering is just uh, i i could not be a full engineering major i had I, they they told me academically i had to, to survive i had to go to history which meant i had to take more poli sci which gave me some more d's on my <laughs> gpa yeah i even went to a math and science magnet high school and what that taught me is i did not want to be an engineer so <laughs> well, i knew going in it was the civil engineer electrical like i'm not worried about that sign me up for poli sci so, so speaking of uh, extracurricular thing, did you do anything in the summers that were was noteworthy? Yeah, I was the global engagement commander, which was a class that they did. I mean, it changed even three times while I was there because we didn't have a full SEER course. So they had combat survival training and then that went away. And so the global engagement was kind of a deployment exercise course where you'd learn how to go through mop gear you'd put tents up you'd learn how to defend a base you'd get attacked and then you put everything down and leave 
And that was on the other side of three degrees going through either soaring or jump. So I did that my uh, senior year. I was the commander there. So wow. it was really cool to be able to have that leadership experience where I was the cadet in charge and I was able to lead in a way that I wanted to and to try out my different leadership abilities and see what worked, see what didn't. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time out in the tents uh, out there because I was like, well, I'm, I'm here to lead. I want to make sure that I'm out there, you know, in the woods with the cadets. Leading from the front. Yep. <laughs> at least at that level, that's, that's what they, that, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. And then we also did, um, it wasn't operation third Lieutenant, but I actually had three years of doing the, um, operation. So the first year I went to Whiteman air force. No first year I went to Offutt. Second year, I went to Spangdalem. And then the third year, I went to... And each one was supposed to be a little bit different where uh, the one between four degree year and three degree year was uh, we spent time with the airmen, seeing what they do. Uh Uh, One between three and two degree year was supposed to be more of like the NCOs. And then the one leading in a first year, we actually spent time with our AFSC. So I got to spend three weeks hanging out with B2 pilots. And getting to see what they do, and uh, we got an incentive ride in the T-38, and it was just a really interesting experience to watch what a day-to-day life as a you know captain pilot is in a flying unit. So that was your equivalent to third lieutenant? Yes, that, that particular one was the more third lieutenant thing where we were matched with a specific person from our AFSE. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, my third lieutenant was uh, Dover, Delaware. We got to fly C fives all over the place. That was fun. Didn't, did Now, did you do any uh, glider piloting or jumping while you're a cadet? So I did jump my uh, fall semester of first year. Uh, my grades weren't good enough to get it uh, right after freshman uh, four degree year. So I did it later, but I knew I wanted to go through the jump course, and I. You know, I advocated hard. It somehow slipped off my schedule. I'm like, no, put that back. Uh, I want to go through jump. And it was that first jump is still the most terrifying and the most exciting <laughs> thing I've ever done. Um, and they had recently switched from VHS to USB recordings. So I actually had the recordings and I sent it to my parents and my mom said, I don't need to see that again. <laughs> so, so you uh, did a free fall. It basically is your first jump. Yep. So first jump, free fall, nobody on your back. And it showed the level of training because you just went right into the training. There was no time to kind of be scared. But I I do remember letting out a very like primal scream uh, after I finished my first jump. And then I was able to at the end, at the fifth jump, my dad was able to come out and pin my wings on. So I have a picture with him. Uh, in his unif- his blues, pinning on my wings as I got my jump wings. That's great. So that was a really, again, unique experience going from generation to generation uh, while completing this academy program. That so they do they do all the jumping now at the at the academy, or do they still go to Fort Benning for some? There's, I think, 
at the time there was an option to go to Fort Benning, but those were more for the people that were thinking about going to the army, but uh, everybody else free fall at the uh, airfield. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I did both. I did the uh, Fort Benning thing and then I, I signed up for 490 and academically I had to stop after my first free fall jump, which was probably wise because I didn't want to do many more of those. those that was pretty, uh, pretty exciting for me. That, that... Yeah, it, it was very exciting. And then I think the hardest jump was the second because like, I already well, know yeah, what it's like. You knew what you was know, coming. <laughs> you knew what was coming. You still have to stand in the door and release and then do everything else. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just remember going through the checklist as I'm flailing in the sky going, uh, was it arch thousand, reach thousand, pull thousand? I go, pull thousand. I'm supposed to do something and pull thousand. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah grab this thing and pull this ripcord otherwise i'm gonna hit the ground yeah, that was yeah i'm sure if they were to if i were to time it again watching the video my seven seconds was probably closer to three i'm sure i counted very yeah. fast on those get counts. away from me to pull that shoot <laughs> yeah let me just so, take the shoot all the way down so you graduate and you got to go to columbus georgia columbus mississippi mississippi okay so you're, you're close to home but you're in a less uh, impressive area <laughs> yeah it was it was nice being in columbus because it was about a four hour drive from atlanta so if i wanted to go during leave or on weekends i could but it wasn't so close as like yeah, i should probably go every weekend um so i did t6s at columbus and then at the time there were four different uh tracks you could go so two of them stayed at columbus the t38 and the t1 and then there were Hueys that went to Alabama. And then there was the TC, uh, the TC-12 or the T-44 that went to NAS Corpus Christi. And those were primarily for people that wanted to go C-130s. So I, I put my hand up, was selected to go, and I, halfway through pilot training, packed up and moved to Texas. <laughs> so you ended up at a, at a Navy base. I did. I, I learned a little bit of Navy speak. Uh, I had to sit watch, which uh, in their training building, they had watch 24-7, which I guess is just a thing the Navy does. Yeah. But it wasn't like anybody was coming in to a training squadron at 3 a.m. You never know. You just never know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I dutifully walked down the hallway and checked the locks at you know at 2 a.m. when I had to. But it was uh, a very unique Navy experience. And even seeing the flight training from both sides, both the Air Force way and the Navy way, gave me appreciation for both. And then also looking at both, there are things that could be done a little bit better. Oh, yeah. And, uh, not saying the Navy knew what they were doing, but they, they do have their little procedures. And it's a service where it's really uh, uh, ship-oriented and the airplanes are kind of a side thing. And so the, the aviators get away with a lot more crap in the Navy than they probably would in the Air Force. Yeah, the uh, pilots that were going through, they all went through, um, they were going to go to the P-8. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the new 737-based one. Uh, that's all the Navy guys were going that direction. And then we had a Coastie who ended up going C-130J's rescue uh, as well. So did you become a C-130 pilot? I did not. So uh, <laughs> at the time, the Air Force said, we need RPA pilots. So... I became an RPA pilot, and I went to the MQ-1 uh, immediately after pilot training. Uh, it was very interesting going from, okay, we're going to fly low levels, we're going to do airdrop to 
flying combat missions in Afghanistan within hours after getting uh, certified in the aircraft. Uh, very different. And then while I was at Creech, I deployed to both Iraq uh, to Balad Air Base, uh, a little bit north of Baghdad, and to Kandahar, Afghanistan, doing launch recovery. Because RPAs, remotely piloted aircraft, they fly their mission stateside, but somebody has to be on the ground in the area you want to land the airplane in order to land and take off the airplane. And so I did two deployments to do that. So you're, you're one, one thing says you're at Nellis, but you're really at Creech, right? That the little place north of Nellis? Yes, it's about a 30 minutes outside of the far northwest corner of Las Vegas, uh, about an hour drive, depending on traffic. Yeah, you're uh, from- in Area 51 with all the aliens. That's yeah, right. you're. if you keep moving that way, then you'll eventually get towards um, Area 51. And if you keep driving north, then you'll eventually hit Reno. But <laughs> it was a lot of people didn't know about the base, particularly when I started. They're like, you're going where? They had only named it Creech, I believe, two years earlier. Before then, it was the Indian Springs Auxiliary Airfield. <laughs> okay. I have actually driven by it, and I go, okay, this is this is a spook place right out here. This is what that's what they're doing out here. Yeah, it seems a little spooky, but it is a huge base, and there are well, a lot of people that work out there. Spook in my day was spies and and you know uh, cops kind of stuff, and I just okay, this is this is some secret you know weird thing going on out here. <laughs> I drove I drove through in 2010, so it's been a while. Probably you're probably stationary. Shoot, yeah. I I was there in 2010. Now, I, I read in one of the uh, write-ups about you that there was some weather issue you had there. Yes. Yeah, so um, the Air Force, in its infinite wisdom, put a Air Force base that had one main route uh, to and from the base. And while I was sitting there as the uh, mission MCC, where uh, in charge of the flying operations and making sure that people had brakes as they needed to, and nobody went over their flying duty period, the road flooded. <laughs> and so now all the people that are coming on to swing shift, so the evening shift, can't get in. <laughs> uh, the only other way to get in is a four-hour, or at the time, was a four-hour roundabout. And so we then had to surge and basically manage the people that were there, make sure that we could continue to fly until the flooding subsided and they were able to clear the road. So a eight hour shift turned into a 16 hour shift, which turned into a 20 hour day. But we were able to keep flying the airplanes and balance those operational requirements, make sure that the crews were rested and uh, complete the mission. But it was a, you know, it's one of those things they don't talk about the academy. They don't say, okay, your squadron's cut off, fly the mission, go. Yeah, you're you're an all weather operating service, but we don't really practice that because we can't don't yeah. get the weather that often. So good. And this is, this is something where your, uh, your creativity and your, uh, your discipline probably played paid off quite well in dealing with an unusual situation. Yeah. The, I don't think it gets talked about too much, but I feel like the Academy taught me a lot of creativity. Some of it is to figure out how to break the rules, but oh, yeah. to uh, think outside the box when you need to, because ultimately, that's as, as an officer, that's what we're getting paid to do is we're getting paid to follow the rules and then break them when you need to. Yeah, and I think that's where true leadership is, is when you're when you're in getting things to work or go, getting 
things done outside the expected manner. I mean, that is, that's where you're pushing the envelope all the time. Cool. So then, then you, okay. I got a little confused here, but I think you go to Little Rock for a while and Ramstein for a while. I do. So the air force had a deal for us. They said, do three ish years in RPAs and you'll get to a man fall on assignment. So I raised my hand and said, sure, I'll take a man fall on assignment. They asked if Ramstein was okay. I said, yes. And then, <laughs> Uh, went through training there. So I went through training at Little Rock to be a co-pilot and then uh, went to Ramstein to fly the C-130J. And training was hard. It was, it's a definite mind, sh- mind shift shift to go from flying a remotely piloted aircraft, doing ISR, CAS, uh, those types of missions to flying a manned airplane, point-to-point airdrop formation and it was a lot more different than I think I even anticipated. So there's a, a steeper learning curve than I probably would have hoped. And then, so you're flying all over the place. It sounded like you went to, uh, you had a bunch of stuff to do with Africa. Is that right? Yes, we were the main cargo support for uh, missions in Africa. So we flew in Europe and in Africa. Uh, I went to a number of typically Western uh, African countries. Uh, We did support the Ebola effort. Uh, I only did one mission, but we did go to uh, Liberia and dropped off uh, supplies to the uh, U.S. service members that were supporting the Ebola mission uh, at that time. So it was pretty amazing. We went to a bunch of different countries. Uh, I bought a map that had the material of a, a lottery ticket on it. And so you could scratch off as you go to countries. And we were able to fill out a lot of countries while we lived in Europe. Well, that's cool. Um, were there any uh, close calls that you had flying the 130s? Not not in the 130s. Uh, thankfully, didn't have any real close calls. Uh, the only time that we lost an engine or an engine didn't work was when we were on the ground in Israel. So I got a free vacation for a few days. Uh, but thankfully I did not experience any aircraft emergencies. I did have one when I got back to Creech, which we can talk about when we get there. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Well, so what, after, uh, after Ramstein, you went to Holloman, is that right? Yeah. Went back to Holloman. So the air force said, Hey, we need, we need you back in RPA. So, uh, do you want to go MQ nines to Cannon or MQ ones to Creech? And it was a very quick answer. MQ ones <laughs> to Creech, please. I hear everybody hates Canon, so that's that's an interesting cut. Well, we had, you know, having come from Creech before, we lived in Las Vegas, we still had friends there, so it made sense to return to the base that we started at. Um, So from there, went through Holloman. I completed the mission qualification training four different times, uh, (laughs) twice in the MQ-1 and twice in the MQ-9. So by the end of it, I was an expert at that particular line of training. And so then back to Creech, and now you say you have a close call in Creech. Yeah, so we have a close call. We are flying a mission, kind of typical ISR, and we notice the oil level goes down our, is going down our airplane. Okay, that's not great. Watch it for half an hour. We see it ticking down. So, okay, this is non-standard. Uh, we swing the camera back to the back of the airplane, and we actually see the oil physically draining out of the airplane. Oh, uh, they talk about that during the Sims, like you see oil running out of the back. It's like, yeah, it's never going to happen that way. It happened that way for us. 
Okay, so we've got oil coming back out of the airplane. That's not great. Okay, where can we go? Well, one of the things about RPAs is that there's only a certain number of airfields you can go to because you need that launch recovery crew there. So mm -hmm. in the C-130, if the concrete's long enough and can support the airplane, we can land there. Uh, that wasn't the case in the MQ-1. So our primary base was four hours away over a mountain range. We weren't going to make it. But we had just worked with another unit to use their base as a um, divert field. So okay. suddenly we are diverting to a field we've never been to, working with a group we've maybe had a few phone calls with, and dealing with an airplane that if it continues to run out of oil, will fall out of the sky. Wow. Um, so that wasn't fun. But we were able to coordinate with this new air crew, uh, get the airplane landed, and uh, get it on the ground safely. One of the both great and the most terrible things about RPAs is that you have a million different ways to talk to people. So there's different phone lines for different levels of classification. We have a chat software. You have the radio. Well, I could reach out to all those people, and those people could reach out to me, too. So I spent some time, once people realized that I was in emergency, fending them off. And they're like, hey, so I hear you have an emergency. It's like, unless you are directly <laughs> helping me, I'm going to hang up on you. Uh, and really taking that pilot in command and then managing both the crew and then the mission cell coordinator to help make some of those phone calls, do that coordination while I'm trying to keep the airplane involved. So yes, I wasn't in the airplane. If the airplane fell out of the sky, I wasn't going to be personally hurt, but we still wanted to make sure that we did what we could to save an Air Force asset. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and a crash is a crash. You, you yeah. don't want to be uh, blamed for that. And I, you're talking about clearing the uh, airwaves. I, I brought up a funny story with one of my best friends in the Navy. He, we were, he was coming back to the ship one night and that was bad weather. Uh, they were getting low on fuel. The divert fields were closed. So they're going to have to land on the ship and he were having a hydraulic problem. And they were worried about, and the, and the ship, <laughs> called out to him and he only oh, had a he had a bolter and had to go around once so he's on a he's on his last pass and and the uh, ship reached out and said uh, hey are you under pressure <laughs> asking about hydraulic pressure he goes i'm under pressure the weather's terrible you know, he gave him all his <laughs> yeah of course i'm under pressure what do you think you know that, that's the uh, just a different type of pressure ga gallows humor in in the uh, in the flying world um and, and that, that, that calmed everybody down enough to where he was able to trap aboard and be fine. <laughs> so I, I noticed in, in your RPA uh, deal, you to be the kid or the young person that they put on the TV, the CBS. Yes. So I did a, um, they asked for volunteers for an interview with CBS and um, I raised my hand and was able to be interviewed for them to talk about RPAs. And it was just a really cool experience to both see what they did behind the camera and then to be able to talk about it. Because uh, RPAs, particularly when I first started, were very misunderstood because the Air Force didn't really want to talk about them. Uh, they didn't want to bring a lot of attention to it. And then people didn't realize our, our capabilities. And yeah. so even when I was in the 130 telling some of the people what we could do in the MQ1 and the MQ9 kind of shocked them. So it was a really great opportunity to do that. And then same thing, I was able to like let my parents know, it's like, hey, you might want to watch CBS this morning tomorrow <laughs> uh, and then do that interview. So I, I really enjoyed that opportunity and way to do it. Uh, and that came from a 
separate interview I did with a person that was getting their PhD and they were working and discussing and talking about RPAs and kind of some of the psychological impacts of it. So I was just happy to get selected to, to do it and uh, be able to show the country what RPAs are and the advantages they bring. Did you want to touch it all on the psychological part of it? I can't. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to do. So I could be involved in a very intense firefight, helping uh, ground troops, making sure they stay safe. And I go home and I got to take the trash out or, <laughs> you know, I got to walk the dog or you go to your friends down at the strip and you're just another tourist in a line of people. And it's, it got really trippy at some points, but I will give the Air Force major credit. They gave lots of resources there where we had chaplains, we had psychologists that had all the security clearances so they could come into your squadron. You could tell them exactly what happened. You know, you didn't have to talk around anything or anything like that and be able to have those discussions. But uh, it took a definite mind, mind shift going yeah. from, okay, I'm at combat you know, I'm fighting a war and now I'm going to go home and be a husband and a father. And be a little league coach or whatever. Yeah. 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 And then um, in 20, less than 24 hours, I'm going back to do it again. So it's, it's sort of like uh, you're a predecessor or early, early canary in the coal mine of the uh, metaverse, right? I almost, uh, I didn't have a, you know, a picture of me dancing in a random room alone. So not quite no, the metaphor. No avatars of you. Yeah, no, no avatars. You know, the airplanes are real, but uh, yeah. it was very interesting. Even as I explained to people now in my uh, Air National Guard role, that there's a lot you have to pay attention to and you have to get locked in when you need to get locked in. So that brings up another uh, transition question, and that is you're not on active duty anymore correct yes so you made a decision after after the minimum time had passed to go do something else what, what was that all about so uh, there was a few different parts uh, one was it became kind of obvious to me and my family that the needs of the air force and my desires were diverging and so what i wanted to do and what the air force saw for me were different and it's like well i could stay in doing what i know where I could do something else. And then it was also uh, my wife started in real estate when we moved back to Las Vegas. She got very successful at it. And it was a, why would we want to continue to move around every three years in order to you know, continue along this Air Force move? In fact, uh, we had a phrase, it was three moves and a 365. Yeah. Because looking at the career path of other people staying in RPAs, I'd move three more times, I'd PCS three more times, and most likely I'd have a year-long deployment somewhere. And, you know, we had our first child, she was turning one, and we didn't necessarily want to do that. So uh, I found out about a few years earlier, a RPA unit in Des Moines, Iowa. So I rushed, interviewed, and am a part-time uh, drill status guardsman, DSG, with the uh, 124th Attack Squadron. And cool. that's great because I still get to keep my, like, I still get to wear my Air Force uniform every once in a while and still keep within that environment, but I'm not living in it. Yeah. And you're going to enjoy the, uh, I, I, 
having done something similar, you'll, you'll enjoy the retired benefits when you get to that age. Exactly. I still get uh, TRICARE benefits, still working towards military retirement, and uh, I get to still remain plugged into that world. So uh, there's some great parts to it. And now you've taken your political science into the world of quality. Is that what I what I see here? Yes, into the world of healthcare. So how this happened is as I was, after I made the decision of, okay, I know I'm going to leave the Air Force. We know we're going to move to Omaha because we're closer to family. And my wife was going to stand up her real estate business in Omaha, uh, serving families that offit. that what am I going to do? And the Air Force offers a course called the Greenbelt course. And the Greenbelt is the first level of training for continuous improvement lean. And I did, uh, my commander allowed me to take three days and go to this course paid for by the Air Force and learn about Six Sigma, lean, waste, uh, Kaizen events, all sorts of improvement things. And as I went through that course, I'm like, oh, I really like this. <laughs> you know, this, this makes sense for me because I've always been that guy that, you know, I'm sitting in a room and somebody tells me this has to be done that way. It's like, is there a better way? Yeah. So I feel like we could do this better. Uh, and I, I hate when people say it is what it is. So <laughs> this was what put that idea in my head. And then as I moved to Omaha, uh, we started looking for roles and this role at Methodist Health System as an operational innovation specialist came up and I applied. The supervisor was actually a spouse of a fellow Air National Guard member. So she understood the military and I got hired March of 2020. Good timing. Right when everything shuts down. Yeah. Yeah. So just imagine starting in a brand new career in a brand new work environment in the very beginning of COVID. Uh, It was truly drink from the fire hose. Uh, as our team transitioned to help the health system on how can we make sure that we're still providing the highest level of care to our patient population. We're making sure that all of our employees that need N95 masks can get them. And how can we make sure that we're going to have the supplies in position? So that's where my team transitioned for the first six months I was there was to make sure that we were able to uh, support the frontline staff. Wow. Yeah, that's that's impressive. We, uh, I I live out here in the Seattle area, and our neighborhood was the first neighborhood that had those, uh, the the Kirkland neighborhood that had a lot of the first cases. So we were, we were doing the same kind of thing. We we're trying to figure out how to how to go go get groceries wearing uh, hazmat suits. Yeah, it was a very, I mean, interesting time uh, to start in healthcare, but I discovered that. I really like it. I understand it. Uh, healthcare and aviation are not siblings, but they're cousins. So yes. there's a lot of uh, same things that kind of go between the two. And it was really fascinating to, to try to then use my aviation knowledge and experience and leverage it and use it for healthcare, for the health system. I was, was going to say, there's a lot of science involved in both of them. So <laughs> glad you had some of that math and science after all, huh? Yeah, and and some of it for us is, how do you write a checklist? How can you yeah. make sure yeah. that we are mistake proofing? How can we reduce errors in care that we're giving to our patients? And that's the kinds of things that, you know, I feel like my military background gives me that advantage to be able to look at things that way. Yeah, I was, I was surprised. My mom, uh, at the end of her life, she had to go to the hospital a few times and 
they didn't have any kind of a checklist. They didn't know much about her. And I go, why aren't you guys? I would think you'd have, you know, what is she left-handed, right-handed? You know, what, what is this? What is that? Just simple things just to see, you know, she shows up in a wheelchair and they can't, they can't figure out why she can't walk to the bathroom. I'm going, come on guys. <laughs> it's common sense stuff. And that's because the different parts of the hospital don't, don't, you know, didn't take her in and she ends up in a different place. But yeah, so if you if you can implement checklists and, and some kind of a strategic organizational uh, thing, that that seems to really help with the uh, hospitals. Yeah, and I spent after the initial COVID response, uh, I was asked to go into the operating room and kind of find opportunities for improvement. So Ooh. I got to uh, observe surgeries. I spent time with the house or the environmental services crew, uh, the nurses, the surgical techs down in supply, and just get that really big picture of, okay, how can we make this easier for our staff? How can we give that higher level of care to our patients? And then uh, at the beginning of last year, I was able to present that, my findings to the hospital senior leadership. And it was really good to be able to take all this knowledge that I had gained. I even put myself on call. So I got called in at 10 p.m. one night. So that way I could see what that experience was like for your frontline staff, because it is, you know, as we talked about in the beginning of the interview, it's very different reading something versus seeing it and experiencing it. <laughs> that's, that's great. But well, Bryce, I thank you very much for this. This is really cool. You sound like you're doing quite well. Well, thank you. I was just excited to kind of tell a non-traditional path uh, out of the air force because I'm one of the, probably a handful of people that was a pilot and now doing something completely different. Uh, even just to show those cadets that there are different ways to do it. And this all started because I took advantage of air Fo free air force training yep. and the air force does offer the green and the black belt, which is the uh, more master's level of continuous improvement. So if any of this sounds interesting, look up those courses. Uh, I believe it's mostly web-based. Now you complete a, uh, project, and then you can go forward with it. But I highly suggest anybody that kind of tinkers on the size and says, how can we make this better to look at continuous improvement? All right. Well, thanks, Bryce. Thanks. That, that's great. That's a great message to end with. Well, thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.